The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Increase Your Reality with Shane Jones. What is up, inquirers? And welcome to the one, the only, inquiries of our reality. Today's guest is uh, straight from Australia. It's been a hot minute since I've had an Australian voice on the show, so I thought it'd be a lot of fun to have him come on and speak about uh, politics from the Australian perspective and some Australian folklore, of course, because, you know, I got to tap that anytime we talk about anything on the show. You got to cover some folklore because that's that's exactly where my root interest is in most things. So this ended up being a really fun conversation. It's a long time in the making because of trying to coordinate everything with the different time zones, but we finally made it happen. It ended up being a wonderful show, and I think you guys are definitely going to enjoy it. But before we get into that, of course, got to do some news and updates. So... First and foremost, of course, I want to be able to see you guys at the Snarly U Presents Cryptid Halloween 2 Cryptid Festival and Halloween Craft Show. That'll be October 28th from 12 to 6 at the American Legion in Charlestown, West Virginia. And there will be more information on that down in the show description if any of you guys want to check it out and try to make it out to that. Uh, Oren, my awesome co-host from Bizarre Encounters, and I will both be speaking there. Uh, it seems like we're going to be doing a three-part where we do one hour of us doing a presentation uh, about a mystery topic for you guys at the moment. And that will also, of course, all of these, of course, will get live fed onto the YouTube or on Facebook, something like that. We'll, we'll try to live feed it while we're doing it. And then part two, we should be interviewing some guests on some local paranormal tales as far as West Virginia goes. And then the third part will be, of course, a free form with uh, anybody who's an attendee wanting to come up and share some of their bizarre encounters and everything. And I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you guys will definitely enjoy it. And if any of you guys aren't able to make it out to there, we will record everything and more than likely it'll eventually end up on the uh, YouTube or if it doesn't sound too bad as far as audio goes without the visual that I'm sure we'll end up adding it on as episodes of Bizarre Encounters. But yeah, a lot of fun. It's a free event, of course. So hopefully I'll see some of you guys there if you guys are able to make it out to that. And uh, some other news and updates. I um, have a new logo in the works being worked on for, by Chris from Conspire a Theory, who is also the guy who recently did that awesome squonk design for me. Uh, it's really, really cool. I'm really looking forward to showing you guys it. Hopefully you guys will enjoy it as much as I do. It's, uh, I guess you could say like a version two of somewhat of the original logo kind of has the same feel, but it's all updated. Really, really cool. Original art all done by him. Can't thank him enough. So just a shout out again to Chris for doing all that for me. And hopefully I'll have him do some more artwork for me in the future because that dude does some amazing artwork and I absolutely love it. But moving on to the front of house stuff. If you guys haven't already reviewed or rated the show, I would definitely appreciate it either on iTunes or Spotify. And if you guys leave a five-star review on iTunes, then I will read on the show and give you guys a big shout out. Uh, if you guys aren't already following the pages on social media, highly recommend that you do. If you want to get updates on anything new and interesting going on with the show, be it new episodes, events, anything like that. Uh, Instagram is the one that I'm the most active on, but we also do have a Facebook set up, but that just kind of gets tri trickled off of the Instagram. 
If you want to have some awesome conversations with some like-minded individuals, highly recommend going and checking out the Discord or the Telegram. Uh, Discord's a little bit more active than the Telegram. The Telegram seems like it's mainly just me posting uh, anything new as far as updates go. But Discord, I want to keep building that into a community. I want people to pop in, interact, not be scared to uh, say whatever they want to say. I want to see you guys interact. I want to see all you guys become friends because I know there's a lot of you guys out there who definitely deserve to meet each other because you all are awesome people, especially if you're listening to the show, of course. Wink, wink. And uh, if you guys want to check out any of the video content I'm trying to put out, there will be a lot more going on in the future, such as, you know, when we present at these events, those will always get uploaded on there. But as of right now, the YouTube and the TikTok are both clips of the show, uh, points of interest with thought-provoking questions to go along with them. So quick and easy way to share the show if you guys are interested in doing something like that, or if you don't think somebody might listen to the full two-hour format, at least give them a snippet, see if they might be interested, then they might follow along and listen to the full episode. So at least give a follow on one or both. Definitely appreciated both ways. And if anybody wants to be a guest on the show, if you're an author, researcher, experiencer, ufologist, cryptozoologist, uh, occultist, whistleblower, any open-minded fringe 40-in topic individual, I definitely want to get you on the show. I want to set something up. Uh, I want to start incorporating more listeners onto the show, even if it's just short little encounters. Maybe I can do some collab episodes where I mash up a bunch of conversations. I have with a bunch of you guys all in the one spot, but don't hesitate. I definitely want to set something up. Even if you're just a listener, you have some kind of short paranormal or weird encounter, or you have a theory or something you want to share. Uh, I want to start in the future, like I said, making at least maybe once every couple months doing some kind of collab episode where I have a bunch of you listeners involved in the show. That'd be really cool because I'd love to uh, make you guys feel like you're part of the show. And if you guys are interested in doing that, you guys can always shoot me a message on Instagram, which is the form of social media that I'm the most active on. You guys can also email me at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast.outlook.com or you can go to the link tree, fill the submission form, and that will go directly to my email, of course. And uh, if anybody's interested in advertising on the show or you have some artwork you want to contribute to the show, uh, anything else you want to contribute to the show in any way, shape, or form, I would definitely love to hear that kind of stuff too. Maybe we can work something out so you guys can also get a hold of me for all of that type of stuff. And uh, if you guys aren't already listening to Bizarre Encounters, definitely recommend that you go and do, especially if you want to figure out who Orin is. If you haven't listened to that show, he's a great co-host. We have a lot of fun over there. So go and check that one out because I'm sure you guys will end up adding that onto your uh, weekly feed if you guys are already listening to Inquiries of Our Reality. Uh, it's kind of like an extension within the same category. The only difference is that we're deep diving and having some fun along the way and doing our own research on that instead of it just being a straight open-minded conversation like this show. And if you guys want to keep tabs on everything I do all in one place, you guys can always go and check out Open Minds Media. We do have a Facebook, a Instagram, the YouTube's under that name, the TikTok's under that name. Uh, just go and look up Open Minds Media. You guys see the logo in the bottom corner of the show logo. So keep tabs on everything I do all in one place. And if you guys want to support the show, there's a couple different ways to do so. Number one, of course, is to go and join the ranks of the awesome Patreon members. If you guys want to get early access to episodes, lives of episodes, live replays of episodes, exclusive merch store discounts, and anything else that I happen to expand onto in the future, I'm sure there's some more benefits that I'm missing, but at least that's the ones I can think of off the top of my head currently. And if any of you guys have some suggestions you'd like to see as far as the Patreon goes, I'm all ears. Come and throw the ideas at me. Even if you think it's a small idea, I want to keep expanding the Patreon and make it so that you guys have even more stuff that you guys enjoy over there. And if you guys want to donate to the show directly to make it so that I can get out to more events and keep expanding and growing the show, you guys can always donate through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, or Red Circle, which is the RSS host for the show. Even if you guys want to buy me a coffee or an energy drink to be able to keep me up a little bit later so I can do some more show notes and editing for you guys, always appreciated. It's all going to go back into the show in some way, shape, or form. 
And uh, if you guys donate, it doesn't give you the option to leave some type of personalized message. Just shoot me a message and let me know that you donated. And I will give you a massive, massive shout out on the show. And uh, if you guys want to go and pick up some awesome merchandise from the Open Minds Media merch store, I would definitely appreciate it. You guys won't just find Increase of Our Reality. You'll also find Bizarre Encounters and any of the other cryptid designs that I choose to uh, expand into in the future. And like I said on the Patreon, if you go and join that, you will get exclusive merch store discounts depending on which tier you pick. So, you know, if you go and pick out, go and join the Patreon first before you go to the merch store, you'll get a little bit of a discount. But if not, all good, all the same. And uh, if you guys don't mind sending me pictures of you guys wearing some of the merchandise, I would definitely appreciate it and love to repost it on the pages. And uh, while we're talking about merchandise, don't forget about Joe over there at Crypto Theology. Always killing it with the amazing cryptid designs that he does. He's shown me some of the new ones that are coming up in the future. They are super duper cool. Can't wait for you guys to see them. Can't wait for me to scoop them for my collection because other than Joe, I probably own more Crypto Theology shirts than anybody because they're just that cool, of course. And uh, everything that I mentioned... All available under the link tree if you guys want to go and check it out, which is available down in the show description. And with that, let's get into the show. Please welcome to the show, Drew Missin from Missing the Point Podcast. How's it going today, man? Good, mate. Good. It's great that we can finally get this uh, worked out. I know we've got some different time zones and, you know, I, I'm a teacher by trade, so I'm usually busy throughout the working week and you're occupied with your family on weekends. So took advantage of my school break during spring to make this happen, which is good. Dude, we've been trying for what? Probably since I started my podcast, at least. I don't know how, how long you've been around for, but it's at least been like a year that we've been trying to coordinate a time with the awesome uh, Australian American time zones. Cause it's funny. Cause it's like personality wise, people from the UK, America and Australia, New Zealand are all kind of on the same boat, but like the differentiation in hours makes it so hard to like set something up to communicate with each other half the time, you know, especially if you have like a night owl in the United States, it's just like weird times in the middle of the day for you guys. Like it's always fun trying to coordinate with people on your, your side of the planet. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. It seems like uh, the British are the hardest ones to lock down. They, they're the, the very top. Um, it seems like Americans are can I can time up well. Balance for us. That's kind of kept us um, from getting to this point. But we're here now. Hey, and that's all that matters, man. So uh, I guess to get everything rolling, uh, everybody knows you as Drew, of course. But uh, why don't you let them know a little bit about your podcast, why you started it, and what you do over there, man? Yeah, I'm Drew Missing. I have a little podcast called You're Missing the Point. Uh, initially just started off as someone who was listening to random podcasts from the US during COVID, the three years that us Australians were locked down for. Um, I became a big fan of Deborah Gets Red Pilled and Adam asked uh, on one of his shows if anyone has any information about what's going on or you've got something you'd like to share and I shot him through a message about the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger and a few things about that and end up jumping on his show as a guest to talk about, you know, some things that were currently going on in Australia to do with the tyranny we were going through um, and that thylacine type of stuff. So kind of started there and I thought to myself, you know what, I could do this. I could, I could do this myself. I've got the mic, got the headset, got everything there ready to go. Why not have a crack at it? And kind of evolved into my own type of, uh, my own, my own type of, uh, psychological treatment for putting up with the past three years of COVID. It was a way of a, an outlet for me to just talk about the things that were built up 
uh, underneath and I need to vent because majority of people still aren't very awake to what happened to us and post-COVID really don't want to talk about what they went through. They're, they're kind of looking forward and not wanting to look back at how shadowy and dark things were. So it just became an outlet for myself to to speak to people who are like-minded all over the world, talk about crazy things. I've always been into the the crypto, the UFO scene and you know, my views have changed quite a bit over the past couple of years and I've got different opinions about those types of things, but it's just a great way to discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the damn right bizarre. You ain't wrong there, man. And uh, I would definitely love to dig into some of the cryptid and the UFO stuff, but I haven't had an opportunity to actually get like a firsthand experience from people that were going through all of the COVID stuff as far as Australia goes, because at least as far as like American media goes, I don't know if they blew it ridiculously out of proportion because, I mean, the American media is definitely known for exaggerating things. So, I mean, just for anybody that might be familiar what was happening in Australia and because it seems like we might be hintering back towards them trying to attempt some more lockdowns. There's been whispers in the air and stuff. So, I mean, for anybody that may not have been familiar with what was happening in Australia and they're just seeing everything from the news, uh, why don't you kind of give them a bit of an Australian perspective on uh, what happened over there? Um, well, Australia started off as a penal colony and we got a, a bit of a, a bite-sized treat of what our ancestors went through. We became the world's largest free-range open-air prison at one point. Um, essentially, we would lock down, the, in my state in particular, the longest lockdown state in the world. Uh, Melbourne held the title of the most lockdown city in the world, most number of days. Essentially, it was like two and a half to three years of lockdown um, on and off. It wasn't consistent the whole time, but it was enough time in between that we were the most locked down place in the world uh throw into that we had restrictions on how long we could be outside of our house we we're allowed two hours of exercise time a day uh, we're only allowed to travel within five kilometers of our household so we had these real restrictive uh measures in place that you would associate with types of prisons that you see in scandinavia where they can just up and leave their little house and wander around and go back as long as they're locked in at the end of the day they're fine that's what it felt like um, so much to the point that we had isolation camps built around our country, people who flew into the country or who were deemed close contacts in certain circumstances, who were deemed as high risk. Uh, they were put in those isolation camps for up to 14 days. If they refused to take any tests on day 14, they were given another week or another two weeks on top of that. Uh, it's a situation where the police definitely stood out as the, the military arm of the state government to the point where we saw militarised police cracking down on our protests and our counter-government mandate protests, where we saw military garb, um, we called them port police, which is like a like a rapid response police force, like full SWAT gear, um, firing uh, rubber bullets at us, 12-gauge beanbag rounds, rolling around in armoured um, Bearcat vehicles, so completely militarised tech. LRADs were being used on people in Canberra during the biggest freedom protests and marches. It got really 1984 really quickly. Um, and I think what Americans saw was, shocking as it was, it was only a glimpse of what the real-life lived experience was. Like, we had drones flying around on beaches telling people to go inside because the curfew was in effect. <laughs> At a time where it was like a, a Blade Runner 1984... Um, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World type of scenario because we were located and isolated to five little five-kilometer bubbles, which is really interesting because it's a lot like the 15-minute cities that's 
kind of coming down. The That's what I was about to say. It seems like they were kind of testing out different concepts in different countries because you can't put everything all in one place. You have to like have little subsections where you try out all these different concepts on what they want to try to steer the world towards in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I think psychologically it was the most breaking point for a lot of Australians and the real effects we won't see for another five or 10 years yet, especially with what kids went through and even the own psychological effects on us as adults that what we experienced was very different from the rest of the world. They weren't the harshest on us, like we all their little testing ground to see as, as much as they could get away with. And it was a psychologically damaging event because we could see the freedoms that were happening in a lot of states in America. People were just going around as business like nothing had ever changed. And for whatever reason, we all the target of the most authoritarian, lockdown, um, dr- draconian types of control measures that the world had ever seen. Do- More so than even China in a lot of regards. If they welded us into our houses, we'd be on parity with China. <laughs> Dude, I honestly, like with the American news model, you never really know for sure. And usually they over-exaggerate stuff more than anything. Like I'm pretty surprised that they actually weren't trying to do that. Unless, again, it was one of those concepts, like I said, that they're trying to do some somewhat of a testing ground type thing. So they don't want you to know the full everything going on in the country. They only specifically want you to see what they want you to see so they can make you feel certain ways about things. And I mean, like half the thing with the American media, and I'm sure they did the same thing to you guys, uh, they probably made everything look way crazier than it was. So everybody kind of had this idea of like, oh, yeah, it's bad in my country, but it's worse in this other place. And I'm sure that, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure they probably did the same thing to you guys on the news that you guys had it probably one of the worst, but they probably tried to make it look like everywhere else was worse, that you guys would just kind of sit and settle in it. (laughs) I think they tried to downplay it. They kind of used America as the example of, look how many people have died in the United States. They really pushed that kill counter or the death counter each day on the numbers globally and how how out of control it was in America. And, you know, we're locked down for our own good. We've only had like 500-odd deaths. And, you know, it's because we locked down so hard. We did the right thing. So they downplayed the 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 actual realistic danger that the, the virus posed to us. They upplayed its, um, its capacity to kill. But at the same time, they were very unapologetic about the, the measures that were put in place and trying to make out like, you're a bad person if you thought that wasn't the right way to approach it. I mean, they kind of did the same thing in the United States. The only difference was that, like, so you had a lot of people that were purposefully, fully going against it. Then you had, of course, the people that were completely falling for it, in all fairness, too. But as far as, like, COVID numbers go, COVID death, everything like that, in the United States, uh, a lot of hospitals were getting additional funding for taking in COVID patients, for marking stuff as COVID deaths. So there's a lot coming out in the United States about like somebody that, for example, uh, got killed in a car accident on the way to the hot, or they got, they, they were badly injured in a car accident on the way to the hospital, they passed away. But because they were in their care at that point, they marked it as a COVID death. So then people who are trying to like get insurance money back for, you know, anything happening, uh, they were end up not being able to do it because it looked like they're trying to file a false claim when they're actually filing the correct claim. And a lot of the hospitals were trying to file the false claims to get additional funding. So I'm sure that they, again, showed those numbers to everywhere all over the world as far as like the American numbers go. But coming from inside the system, like it's common knowledge and everybody knew that those numbers were not correct at all because of the money factor being behind it. 
Oh, yeah, everything was greatly inflated. I don't think that's any small secret to anyone. But it's a, um, it was a situation of we're very lucky that we're in the day and age that we exist in now. If COVID had happened even as early as the 90s, I think they would have convinced everyone. They could have scared the shit out of every single person and a very, very, very small portion of the population would have seen through it. If it wasn't for the use of the internet, streaming things on your phone, interactions with the police that are being made live, majority of the population would have just bought what the media was telling us. Um, podcasts, people being on the ground, boots on the ground reporters being civilian reporters, they actually captured the real events and gave people enough of a counter narrative to make them question and actually think about, you know, is the media actually telling us the truth here? Are they trying to scare us into compliance? So the internet was the genie that got out of the bag on them on this one. Like I said, if it happened in the 90s or the 80s, the technological level at those times would have made it very easy for the elites to do everything to 100%. I think America would have been majority um, vaccinated like Australia is if the uh, technology wasn't at the state it is now. I mean, you ain't wrong there because, I mean, you had like the satanic panic back during the 80s. Like there's just a lot more fear instilled. But if people were actually seeing people physically get sick in the process of it, like, yeah, it probably would have completely been blown out of the water on that one. And talk about a positive thing for the Internet. I mean, everybody wants to talk about all the downsides to the Internet. I mean, of course, there is a lot of downsides to the Internet. But again, if it wasn't for the fact of us all being able to communicate, uh, there wouldn't be nearly as many people that are awake to seeing how the world actually functions and works. And I mean, anybody that's kind of left on the other side of it at this point where they haven't at least questioned at least one part of the narrative, if you completely believe every single part of the narrative, you have no questions about it. I feel like those are the people that there's, for lack of better terms, I don't want to say no hope, but those are the people that if they didn't wake up during all of that and at least have some questions, like it's, they're never going to. And I mean, for the simplest way of looking at it, I mean, those could just be those people that just want to live a simple life. Um, they don't want to get involved in all this kind of stuff. And they just uh, they can't fathom the idea about the people that claim to be caring for them to not actually care about them. So, I mean, like half of that may just be self-protection because they just can't process like their governing body that's supposed to care about them you know, lying to them directly to their face. I mean, even just to throw in another one too, like I'm sure you guys have had your major events over there, but even like 9-11 too, like the towers, you know, there's a lot of people that have just like that true patriot concept and like, I get it, you know, like I, I question it of course, and I don't think that the narrative is correct, but like if people want to believe the narrative, like I, I get it because again, it's just that whole patriotic tie link to it on um, a lot of, family deaths for a lot of people with all that kind of stuff. But at least for as far as the Pentagon part of that whole thing goes, like it doesn't make any sense. Like there's a lot of question to the narrative and all these big events happening. It's like different subject or subsections of people get woken up each time. And then the ones that don't question anything, those are the ones that it's just kind of like, you know, the, 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 the government seeing them as like, Oh, they're, they're fine. They're just going to listen. But I've thrown this idea out a few times, like all of us that actually want to speak up and actually have questions about all this stuff. I kind of question whether or not we're almost like putting a target on our heads, like even specifically just podcasters in general. Like if you're going to go into like freedom of speech and the people that are really, really pressing, pressing the, the, the principle of it, I mean, 
people is like, oh, it's just a podcaster. Like, who cares? Why do you think anybody's listening to you like that? Why do you think the government's listening to you? But it's like, realistically, you know, there's like the major people, of course, like Alex Jones, if he's not a shill to begin with, who fucking knows? I really don't. But the next step past that, if they're going to be watching any citizens, it's going to be people like us that are out and actually talking about all this kind of stuff, because I'm sure the world is aware, the government's aware that the pen is mightier than the sword. And in turn, you know, the, the word is stronger than trying to fight back half the time because the real damage is in philosophy. And that's why they don't like open-minded individuals and school systems are kind of set up to go against open-minded individuals and kind of teach you just to go with the flow and not question the narrative because as soon as people start questioning the narrative and philosophy gets involved, that's when people are going to realize that, Oh, so we have this, this guy in front of us who's a power and he's bigger than all of us. Oh no, what are we going to do one day? Those four people that are standing in front of them are going to realize that, hey, there's four of us and one of them. Why are we sitting here and taking this? <laughs> uh, it's, it rings true to what's happening in the world in general at the moment, but Australia yet again becomes a testing ground. Uh, there's currently a bill which is being proposed happening in the background of Australian politics called the Misinformation and Disinformation Bill. It allows the federal government to fine... Uh, media outlets such as Twitter or X um, and other social um, social media platforms about misinformation, disinformation. The problem with this bill is that it allows one person, like an information czar, to deem what the truth is in the country. So it completely removes what very little freedoms we have in regards to freedom of speech. We don't actually have that in our constitution in Australia. We have an implied freedom of expression, which is very different from freedom of speech. So we've already got that against us in the first place, but now we've got the potential that one self-governing person that's not actually linked to any political party can determine what truth is. Now, this woman who's behind this was, was an ex-Twitter employee who got ousted when um, Elon took over. She's also someone who was headhunted by the CIA fresh out of university <laughs> in Australia, but she didn't, air quote, partake of their offer. And now she's trying to push this, this idea that the average citizen, if they say something they don't deem to be true, could potentially face 12 months within prison. What? So just looking at my backlog of any of my content, if they decide to make it retroactive or as of a certain day they determine what I'm saying is not true, like they, they could say one day, this is a very hyperbolic, the sky is purple. I could do an entire episode of why the sky is actually blue because I see it with my own eyes. I can break down the science of why this the sky looks blue to the human eye. There are reflective lenses in the atmosphere, blah, blah, blah. They can go, no, you're wrong. It's purple. 12 months jail. Dude, it's insane this to me. happening right now. That we've gotten to that point. Even like Jacinda Ardern. Yeah, Jacinda Ardern, the ex-prime minister of New Zealand who said, um, we're your single source of truth during the pandemic. She made a speech to the UN recently saying free speech is a weapon of war and they need to navigate the ways in which free speech can be controlled because of misinformation and disinformation. So while Australia is actually putting these legislations in place to kind of prove to the Western world it can be done, she's trying to sell it on a global stage that free speech is a weapon of war. So they're coming after our free speech and like you said, It'll be the little average person with a podcast or the person that decides to post on Facebook every now and again. They're the people they're going to go after. They're not going to go after the news corporations who consistently get things wrong and refuse to retract their statements. They'll come after the average citizen. I mean, they're already kind of starting to do 
it, it's a step-by-step process. It's not going to be something that happens overnight, but there is a, uh, it's either, I think it's the governor of New Mexico. Uh, she's basically trying to say that in martial law, like the first and second amendment aren't relevant. So freedom of speech, right to bear arms, like it doesn't matter at that point because it's for the safety of all as a whole. So it's like, again, a step-by-step and even in a bunch of different States, um, I'm not trying to state my, trying to sound like a bigot about anything, but theoretically they're trying to pass bills that are saying that if you misgender somebody in certain States, that it's actually like a verbal act of violence and you can get like ticketed penalty for it, like whatever they want to try to choose as like the repercussion for it. But there is bills in, in action that they're currently trying to do to make it so that even just that, that's like the first step in going into that. Because I mean, theoretically speaking before all of this like woke trans movement all that kind of stuff you know you know you joke with your guy friends and be like oh why are you acting like a girl stuff like that like it was just stuff that wasn't it wasn't a thing now it's like you could be joking with your buddy and be like oh why are you acting like such a girl and the wrong person hears that and then all of a sudden you have you know a cop showing up trying to write you a ticket or trying to arrest you for saying that you were being violent with your speech Like it's again, like a step by step, but they do it so slow that people don't realize it. And I mean, I feel like the main attack started with the whole like Joe Rogan thing, what probably like a year and a half, two years ago. But even with since then, like he's definitely like he has his his spots and stuff, but he's definitely miled himself out since then. So it's like even the people that are like on the tip top of everything are still scared of like what the possible repercussions could be. Because I mean, we can sit here and we can chant till we're blue in the face, but the problem with uh, the way the internet's set up, it's not like how pirate radio used to be where you can't find an exact location. Um, I mean, you're, you can find exact locations as far as like podcasters and stuff go. And I mean, even if you're using like a VPN stuff like that, I mean, it's only a matter of time before somebody slips. And if they're actively trying to prove a point, it doesn't matter how small of a podcast you are. If they want to prove a point, they're trying to prove a point and they're going to do what they need to do necessary in order to, make you a point you know (laughs) yeah yeah um and it's politics is downstream of culture it always is unfortunately what we've seen in the past 10 years we saw that woke movement start to happen where we had things like terms like hate speech thrown around and words of violence and all this type of thing that originally we thought was just a fringe minority talking about it then that slowly made its way into mass media mass entertainment and we saw what the, what the likes of Disney done, Bud Light, all these big corporations, which really still only represent a small fringe minority. But because that cultural trend is moving, that influences politics. Now, you and I might assume that, you know, it's all a part of the same type of group furthering the same agenda. But if you look at it from a normie lens, it's a small, small percentage of the population dictating culture, which dict- then dictates politics, which then dictates the laws, which controls the majority. Like um, what you're talking about with um, hate speech and misgendering. Canada already has those types of things in place. If you misgender someone, huge fines, potential prison time. Australia has some very similar types of things going on. It's more around the terms of hate speech opposed to misgendering, but that's on the way. My state has a approach for children transitioning, which is all about affirmation. It's not about actively getting them support, um, treating them psychologically to, to assess if they actually are dysphoric in their gender. It's all about, yep, you've identified you want to be a girl or you've identified you want to be a boy, so we're going to do everything we can to make sure that happens for you. And it's usually over one or two little um, meetings with a doctor or a, or a practitioner, and it happens. Man, I was talking about this on actually the episode before this episode is going to drop, saying that um, 
we need to spend a little bit more time trying to get to like the root of it rather than just like, Oh, all right. You feel like that. And then fully just throwing on board with it. We need to start actually breaking it down on like, why do you feel that way? Why do you think that this is wrong? Because honestly, like most things that happen in life, not even just related to this particular topic, but most things are related to some form of trauma. And I mean, I feel like a lot of it now, which again, there's a million different factors that can be contributed into this, but there's an uneven number of like male to female ratio. So I feel like that is also somewhat of a contributing factor to it because there is a lot of male to female transition. And part of that may be just because there's a lot of like grown men that, um, you know, are having trouble trying to find like a significant other. Uh, they want to feel like they're accepted by society because maybe they're just, you know, just an average normal person. Nobody's really paying any attention to them. So they do this transition. Uh, they're stunning and brave, you know, as they like to quote. And after that, then they think that they might have a little bit better luck as far as like finding a partner or something, maybe because they can relate to somebody else that goes through these surgeries, whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, I feel like it's, uh, a lot of it, it just kind of links down to the fact that there's an emptiness, I guess you could say in society. And so people are trying to do dramatic changes to try to make themselves feel better in the moment, not necessarily thinking about like the longevity of it. And I mean, if you're an adult teach his own, like whatever, as long as you keep it away from the kids, because no matter what type of sexuality it is, be it again, any kind of sexuality, even heterosexuality, like there's not really like a need to be preaching it to the kids. Like when they come into that age where they start getting interested in that stuff, I mean, of course, within reason, you know, kind of give them the information that's needed, but it doesn't need to be pressed on them at such a young age. Because again, that's when it, that kind of stuff gets pressed on them at such a young age, kids don't know what they want to begin with most of the time. I mean, like, you know, one one kid can can be completely this way one day and then the next day they're totally into a different topic. And I mean, even, even some adults, I mean, when I was 18, 19, 20, you know, I was getting tattoos and stuff. And I mean, half of those tattoos, it's like I wouldn't have gotten the same thing now. And that isn't even nearly as dramatic of a life change. And I mean, what's, you may be 100% okay, like this is what I want to do now, but 10 years down the line, you might feel completely different, especially if you are a teenager, for example, by the time you're like your mid twenties, like who knows how you might actually theoretically feel. And I've again, throw this out on the last show too. I mean, if we're going to start gauging all of this kind of stuff for, you know, it's okay for, you know, somebody to transition at a super duper young age, then why aren't we, for example, like legalizing tattoos for kids? Because theoretically, like that's, easier to get rid of if somebody does change their mind than a, a gender surgery would be or even if they're taking hormone blockers like their body if they do decide that they don't want to change um isn't going to develop the same way because those hormones are needed at that particular time in order for them to be able to you know kind of come into their body so to speak so even if like you know you're unsure and you start taking those those pills and then all of a sudden you you know say okay never mind I want to remain a guy um, your body isn't going to have the same balance. So you're going to be a little bit more of a feminine male physically because you weren't getting the right hormones at the right time. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to just like the whole scale of things that if you can do that drastic of a decision at that young of an age, and we're just trying to kind of push it down the line and say, it's okay, it's totally okay. Then maybe we need to start looking at the scale for some other serious life choices and kind of put them in comparison. Like, 
you know, you just for everybody's public sa- like safety, you know, the cigarettes, you have to be a certain age to smoke cigarettes too, because they know that there's a lot of bodily harm that could possibly come with it. I mean, it should be honestly the same for this, where I feel like a perfect way of knowing if somebody truly does feel this way and theoretically quote, you know, needs a change as they would like to kind of word it, you know, if they spent their entire teenage years feeling that way and they still feel that way when they come of like the legal age to get like a tattoo or to start smoking cigarettes, then that kind of just confirms it more. But again, still in the process of all of that, I feel like there needs to be a lot more internal communication as far as like figuring out the root of it, because in some way, shape or form, even like the simplest life choices you make, like, you know, maybe I, uh, you know, I don't like it when it rains because I just get this weird fear in the back of my mind or something like that. It's, it's all linked to some form of trauma. Every single thing that you fear in life, every single thing that you feel in life, it's all linked to something that you experienced in your childhood that may have been positive or it may have been negative. Like we, we just need to dig into it a lot more psychologically instead of just affirming how people feel without figuring out exactly why they feel that way. Yeah, it's not like we see many flower power ex-hippies still in hippie form. Those people became the boomers that became the big businessmen of the of the modern day. And we don't see all that many emos from when we were kids. They kind of grew out of that phase. We don't see as many goths as we used to. Because these are like your early, your, your early teens are the times when you're figuring out who you are as a person. Your body's going through all these changes. You're... Um, you may not have caught up with the other people around you. You may still be short. You might be frumpy. It's all about being comfortable within your body. And I think it's being hijacked and taken advantage of. At the end of the day, I think this all comes down to trying to get children to consent to something or setting up the idea of consent that's going to go down a very, very dark, dark direction. We see what the UN are doing about wanting to change the age of consent and whether children of certain ages can consent to sexual acts with adults. This is absolutely disgusting terminology we're hearing from supposedly one of the world's greatest leaders of peace and free movement within the world, and they're actively targeting children. I think that's this is just the next mechanism to allow a certain demographic to move around freely in society without repercussions. I mean, I've kind of wondered, too, if it's just kind of somewhat of a push for what they intend the future to be um, in the aspect of, one, if everybody is living off the system. So, like, you know, if you get any of these um, surgeries, anything like that, then off of after that, you, you know, you still have to keep up with all of your different medications, all of your um, your hormone pills. So essentially for the rest of your life you now are, you're going to have to be involved to some extent with the pharmaceutical industry. So it's creating revenue off of that to begin with. Um, And then past that too, I mean, kind of pushing into like this dystopian kind of idea of the future, you know, they're, they're more so than anything. I mean, this is still a relatively new thing that people are doing. So the whole science of if things are going to work properly still hasn't fully been figured out yet. Of course, there's always going to be the negative ones that don't quite work out properly. So once people become uncomfortable in their own bodies because they've done all these different things to their bodies, attempting to feel comfortable in their bodies, the next step after that, if you're just trying to keep everybody as part of a slave to the system, is that you say, okay, so, all right, you're uncomfortable in your body in this world. Well, if you join this virtual reality, then you can be a boy today you can be a girl today. You can, you know, you can be whatever you want today and nobody would know none of the difference because you don't have to physically change your body. You, um, can just go into the game and essentially just 
pick what you want to be each day. It's conflating the idea of gender and sex being completely separate things. The argument you seem to get a lot from one persuasion of politics is that gender is a social construct and it's how you feel. It's how you feel as a person. My question I always counter is, if it's all about how you feel and you can be a girl, why is the need to change your sexual, change your sex? If gender is separate from sex and you're identifying as a gender of a, of a girl, why is there need to become female sex-wise? That kind of dismisses the whole argument if it's all about feelings and the way you identify because you can have all the, the body parts you have of your normal body that you're born with and still be a, air quotes, girl because it's the way you feel and the way you present yourself. It's more personality than anything else. They're trying to push this idea of people's personalities somehow having to change one's sexual nature, which you can't change your sex. The chromosomes don't change. You can mutilate a body, but at the end of the day, you are still the sex you were born, and that's never going to change. It's a bit of a a dangerous pipe dream they're trying to sell people. And like you said, it creates lifetime customers for big pharmaceuticals that they're always going to have to be on hormones, cross-sex hormones the rest of their life. Because if they go off at cold turkey, they will die. And the long-term medical um, issues with this still aren't quite known yet. We know osteoporosis and high risk of cancer are big things that are popping up now. But what else? At the end of the day, it's a multi-pronged approach where they're creating money off these people, which is as much as $1.5 million per person the medical industry is making off these um, poor people. But at the same time, it's sterilizing people. Like we know the elites think there's too many of us, useless eaters. Well, they're going to make money off us while sterilizing the population at the same time. I mean, there could be a complete control concept too, where it's like, you know, if you have a person that, isn't needed to be attached to the pharmaceutical industry, then, you know, they could go off the grid. They'll have no problems whatsoever. But if, um, it just cause it's kind of felt like a weird time as far as like when they're trying to do this massive control because of all the COVID stuff we were talking about, I mean, how easily could they just switch it where they say, all right, you know, you've gotten this surgery done and unless you go get your vaccines and you listen to us and you do this and you stay in your 15 minute city, we're not going to give you your hormones that you need. So then what are you going to do after that? You know, you need to do what we need, what we're telling you to do. Otherwise, you're not going to get what you need in order to be able to stay alive, to be comfortable anymore. So, I mean, it just it's creating a new form and ability for them to be able to control the behaviors and actions of people based on fear of how their body might turn out if they're not getting the medication that they need. And especially just looking at it, too, on like how the world's going. I mean, at any point, you know. Rome was around for way longer than the United States was, for example, and that eventually collapsed. I mean, once one of these systems collapses, anybody that's part of that movement that's living in that society, um, they're going to have a hard time trying to maintain their lifestyle um, without the construct of society built around them. So it's like they're those same people are going to be the ones that are trying to fight for the country to stay as a whole, if um, even if they are pushing some totalitarian ideas because of fear that they may not be able to get what they need. Yeah, it's. Um, I often say, it's, I don't think it's just America, I think it's the West. If you're thinking like the Roman period, the Romans for the longest time of their reign were pagans and then they became Catholics. The Roman Catholic Church took over and it was the Holy Roman Empire. 
It's almost like the Anglo-American empire is what we're seeing out of the West. The British empire, which then evolved into the American, the American revolution. And the American revolution is almost a stage where the Roman empire became Christian. And we're seeing that stage now. We know the Romans fell not long after becoming Christian in the grand scheme of things. The empire fell and other small things took over to take its place. But we're definitely seeing the death throes of the West as we know it. We've kind of grown up in this point and the boomers probably came in at the right time of the of the Anglo-American empire having all the, the great things that came out of it. And we're almost one of the last generations to see the downfall. Um, I really hope it doesn't happen to our kids because that's a worse situation. I think if you have to go through something, you want to go through it yourself so that you can kind of rebuild and pick the pieces up to give your children a better life. You don't want that to happen to your kids. But I definitely see the the West as we know it's not going to be the West that we, we grew up knowing it is. Honestly, coming from inside of the United States, I mean, you can kind of see the transition happening where obviously the U.S., as long as it's around, is definitely going to be somewhat of a superpower. But, you know, for years, we've been like the main controlling superpower, I guess you could say. And you can see the powers definitely starting to shift here where, I mean, even like for China, for example, you know, the U.S. used to send a shit ton of recyclable stuff there and then they'd process it, send it back. Now they don't do that. So it's like most countries in the United States are getting tricked into thinking that you're recycling, you're doing all this, but realistically they're just throwing away all your recyclables just like regular garbage because they have nowhere to put it and nothing to do with it. So it's like, you know, we use them for so long and help build up these other countries' economies by trying to fluff our capitalism. Great party. It's a lot of work to put something like this together. Shh, I had a lot of help. Why are you whispering? I ordered everything on DoorDash about an hour ago from Coles. Wait, really? Yep, DoorDash has thousands of items from Coles that you can get delivered. That's such a good idea. Don't tell my mother-in-law. If she asks, tell her I was running around all morning. Download the DoorDash app today and enjoy fast, convenient grocery shopping on a wide range of items from your favourite grocers. We won't tell your mother-in-law. The pockets, and now that we've paid them out so much in order to produce all these goods for us. Now they have their own balanced economy and they're like, all right, we don't need you anymore. And we're going to jack up the prices on all of this. While at the same time in a lot of these Western countries, and I'm sure it's the same for you too, after uh, COVID and everything, like the whole motivation of the worker has definitely slowed down. And I mean, I'm not one who's going to say like, yes, you need to work. I love the slave system by any means. But, you know, you have to still have somewhat of an affordable income in order to, you know, just live in general. But the problem that you're having now is that there's this balance or not even a balance, I guess you could say. But there's the people that, you know, got the the free ride during COVID. They got paid to not work, do whatever. And all of those people, they just don't have that motivation to work. And then you have the other half, such as myself, that, you know, I work in medical cannabis, but because it's medical cannabis they deemed it as a necessity because it's a medical thing. So like I worked all the way through COVID and when there was less people working, the people that were working were working twice as hard to make up that difference for it. So now you have this group there. Nobody wants to work, but it's a split between the people that are so overworked because of the people that aren't working. And then the other half that they just had the free ride and they just don't feel like working anymore. And again, I'm all about the family life. Don't get me wrong. Like family always comes first, but you still need to be able to go to work, be comfortable, do your thing and come home and still be able to deal 
with your family and everything like that. But it's sad that like half of us that are only, you know, around our thirties or so are so burned out now because of having to essentially do double work, triple work, even maybe even quadruple work, depending on the company for the past four years. And it still hasn't gotten any better where, you know, I've worked at a few different companies now and you see like a hard split between the people that overly bust their ass and then the other people that'll flake in and out and be there for a week and then go find another job. And it's like no place is able to remain constant and comfortable for everybody to work at because 99% of the time you're trying to train these new people so that they can just leave the next week. Yeah, I think there's almost a third group that I propose that sits somewhere in there, almost like a Venn diagram with all those three things coalesce at the same time, that there's a, a definitely a group of the working population that realised what's important in life. It's not all about working, but at the same time, you have to support your family, just like you said. But people became very savvy on how they could balance that work-life um, balance. So, like, why are we working five days a week to only have two days off? If you went to Vegas and those were the odds, people wouldn't gamble. It's not good yep. <laughs> so people are figuring out, they're looking at how much they're getting taxed, how many hours they have to work. And a lot of people realized, especially in full-time work, went, you know what? If I drop down my full-time work to part-time, ongoing position, say three days a week, I may be learning, earning less money, but I'm not getting as much tax. So the money I take home at the end of a, a weekly or a fortnightly pay is comparable to what I recently had. Maybe a little bit less, but I can still live on it. So people have made those those leaps out of the full-time workforce and went into more manageable part-time work to try and get more out of life. And I can see that as being a big contributor as well because you've got the people that just decide they didn't want to work because they're lazy. And then these people who have left because they want to manage their work-life balance a bit better, they've removed themselves from the workforce to a certain extent. And the people that are already burnt out have to try and fill that void. And that just continually builds up to more burnout. So we're in a situation where I think everywhere is the same that you go to get a burger at a fast food restaurant. The waits are horrendously long. It's no longer fast food. Mm -hmm. Barely anyone's working. You can't find anyone for um, the food industries anymore. You go to a restaurant, you're waiting the longest time to get someone to um, come take your order. All these service industries, they seem to be drastically understaffed at the moment. And I think that's just a, the flow and effect of what happened during COVID and how people see themselves in the working world of the matrix. And honestly, too, everybody had this concept of like the 40 hour work week. And I mean, there's the good portion of people like myself that when I'm there, when I'm at work, I'll bust my ass. I'll do everything that needs to get done. But I'm very adamant about the fact that like this is my time I come in. This is the time I leave. And most places at this point expect more than that without saying it. Like you can do exactly what you were hired on to do at the times you were hired on to do, but they almost like say, well, it's not mandatory, but at the same time, you know, it's mandatory. Um, you know, you need to stay a couple hours later this day whenever we need you. Yeah. It's, 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 it's expected of you, but it's not mandatory. And it's like almost impossible to even just find jobs now with like a normal schedule. Like most places want you to work like one weekend day. They want you to do this. They want you to do that without understanding the fact that, you know, everybody's trying to get their employees to come back, but rather than overworking the people you have, why don't you try to make your schedule as normal and standard as possible for people? Because people want that normality in their life that they know that they can come to work at seven and they're leaving at this time 
And that's the same every single day and they can get comfortable with that. And then they're able to enjoy their life past that and still be able to pay for all the bills that they need to. But there's two, there's two ways of going about things. And it seems like most companies, instead of trying to work with people in order to figure out how to get the good employees to stay and everybody to be comfortable and everybody to be happy there, they would rather come in with a strong arm and tell people, this is what you're fucking doing. And at least with today's society, I mean, 20, 30 years ago, that hard ass boss, you know, people had a lot of respect for that hard ass boss. Nowadays, I always try to differentiate this thing that you can rule through respect or you can rule, you can rule through, through fear. And if you have a manager that's always threatening you, you know, you're going to listen, but you're not going to respect the guy in the aspect of like, you know, as soon as he's not looking, people are going to steal shit. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. But if you learn how to work with your employees to make them happy within reason, of course, not like, oh, it's okay. You can leave. Oh, it's okay. You can leave. And the people are only working like one day a week, but you try to find that comfortable balance. And then once you build that respect factor, then people aren't going to steal. They're going to bust their ass twice as hard because they respect you. And they know that they can come to you and say, Hey man, you know, I uh, can't find a sitter this particular day. Like, um, I, I really, sorry, I got to stay home with the kids this day. And the next person be like, okay, that's totally understandable. You know, like you just have to, you have to find like a middle ground that a lot of the people that are in charge are still trying to use that old mentality, not realizing like how society's functioning nowadays. And I'm not saying to like be soft for people walk all over you. I'm just saying to learn how to, be respectful of your employees so that they won't walk all over you because they respect you. And in turn, they will work hard out of respect for you instead of like, you know, just r- ruling with fear and saying, fuck you. And as soon as you turn around, they're all going to be sitting in their ass and not give a shit. And as soon as you hop up, then they bust their ass again. You know, it's, there's two different ways to do things. And I feel like the, the dynamic for as far as the workplace goes has drastically shifted. And a lot of companies need to take that in consideration, especially since they're in this process of trying to get people to go back to work. And I keep hearing a lot of people talk about this. They need to get harder on employees, harder on employees. I don't think that's what it is. I think you need to get harder on the employees maybe that are the ones that are taking advantage of everything, but the people that are busting their ass and have been busting their ass and are just getting burned out, you need to try to find that middle ground and learn some mutual respect because you know that it's a good employee, so they're not going to walk all over you, but don't shit on that person in the process, like have some respect and work with them. And then that's how that person's going to stick around and they're actually going to get the job done for you. Yeah. Like imagine a time when bonuses used to be given out to people who worked hard. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of people who don't have any sick days who worked all the way through, like say they were an authorized worker. They worked all the way through lockdowns. They did extra hours. They did all this. And then you've got Joe blow off to the side who just calls in sick every other day and, you'd know verifiably as a boss that that person's just using sick days as an excuse to get out of work and still get a paycheck. It's like we can't call people out on their bullshit anymore. Um, But it's also that dangerous side of things as well where you can see the system wants to go very hard. There's I can't recall the gentleman's name and I'm kicking myself for not remembering it. There's an Australian businessman and a media commentator who said, the only way to break the current trend of the laziness from COVID and the people who don't want to work anymore it's for unemployment in Australia to get to 60% and then people appreciate what a hard day's work is. I don't think these people really fully grasp the full severity of 60% unemployment. That's worse than the Great Depression. Yep. Like there'll be people dying from malnutrition and, and dropping in the streets. That, it's that really easy for the elites to say those COVID concepts because they're not actually working a hard day's work either. <laughs> 
No, and they're sitting on multi-millions of dollars in the bank account scanning interest. Like, mm-hmm. They don't live paycheck to paycheck. They, they can never understand what it truly means. Dude, I'm sure you've probably seen some videos like this, but we see videos like this in the United States all the time where they'll have like politicians go through like an average American's house, household's house and just the looks of like disgust on even like some of these houses that are like the average person's house and they keep it up, of course, and they try to make sure it looks really nice before, you know, a political official is going to come over to their house, but they're still looking at this house in disgust. And that just shows how much of a gap that there really is from the common people to even like the lowest end of these politicians that we're all living totally different lives. And the only way this system is ever going to function correctly again is if we put these systems back to how they were supposed to be, where the common man is speaking for the common man instead of these elites pretending like they're the common man and speaking for all of us when realistically they speak for none of us. Yeah, well, these are the same people that can't tell you how much a loaf of bread or a carton of milk costs. They've got no idea of what the real world is. <laughs> 500 would be enough, right? Even their own reality. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just throw you a 3,500 bucks. That should be more than enough to get a couple groceries, right? <laughs> You're going to believe in like a half a basket anyways. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um... We've been talking about this for a hot minute, but I definitely wanted to take the opportunity to shift the conversation here for at least a little bit, because we can always come back to this on a different episode, of course. Um, But I'm sure people have heard people talking about this on podcasts for a hot minute, and a lot of people come because they like hearing about all the weird and bizarre stuff. So I cover a lot of stuff from the American perspective of folklore, cryptids, all that kind of stuff. Um, I've had a couple of people on the show a long time ago talking about some Australian folklore as far as like... Yowie, Mimi, all that kind of cool stuff. But you said you research in all this stuff for your show. So if you're interested in sharing it, I'd love to hear uh, some of the most maybe common, most known, most popular cryptids and UFO sightings. Any of the type of stuff you research as far as like bizarre, mysterious uh, things go and uh, over on your side of the pond. Yeah, yeah. This is something I, I tried to tap into with my own podcast, too, my own like little bite sized chunks of like Australian cryptid episodes and things like that. I produced two and then I quickly just lost time. You know, life just gets in the way. It's something I'm still chipping away in the background, but I'm not releasing anything until it's something I'm really proud of. Like I did with my first few, like I had the momentum going with those and least something that I really liked. But um, what I'm looking into at the moment is, so the concept of the dream time or the dreaming. A lot of Australians, a lot of Westerners have the idea of the dreaming being as like this mythological story of how Aboriginal people in Australia came to be. It couldn't be any further from the truth. The dreaming actually means it's something more akin to the force or like a druidic type of approach to nature. It's something that's around us and it's happening all the time. So a dreaming story isn't something necessarily from the past. It's the entire span of time. It's the past and the present and the future, everything all happening at once. So we've got all these stories about these like fantastical creatures like um, I know Grub's been on your show before to talk about um, uh, Indigenous spirits, particularly from his area. I didn't want to assume that everybody who was from Australia knew everybody, but it's really funny that you brought up Grub. <laughs> I know. I, do, I, do, I have had Grub on the show before. I do know him. <laughs> Grub's a great dude. If he's listening, he is. <laughs> hopefully he's listening. Shout out to Grub. <laughs> So, um, yeah, we've, we've spoke about, Grub and I spoke this st- about this stuff before, but they go by different names in different parts of Australia. But you've got these, these spirits or these ancestors, these types of entities which 
to someone from the outside looking in from a Western perspective or, say, a modern technological perspective would see these things either as alien, which a lot of people make the connection with that these were ancient alien visitations, or these are interdimensional beings. Um, I'm at the point where I'm a, I'm a new Christian. I've just found the faith and going through the word. So I'm drawing a lot of connections between the, the UFO world that I, I started reading about as a 12-year-old and I'm more moving into the position now or my belief around what are aliens and what interdimensional beings are and demons are, are all essentially the same type of thing. So I'm starting to see connections between that perspective of my research and First Nations um, stories and accounts. In a lot of situations, a lot of Aboriginal sacred sites are associated with rocky outcrops. Generally, these rocky outcrops have high quartz contents. And we know quartz is a crystal has an ability to have a resonant frequency that vibrates. Now, theoretically, there is a, um, a resonant frequency where these crystals can vibrate to a certain extent where they can pass through dimensional um, or alternate dimensional gateways. This has kind of been proven through string theory and um, um, quantum physics. and It's all speculation, but it's their air quotes proof for it. So we're seeing these ideas of entities such as quinkens or... or um, Imjim and Tamara, which is indigenous spirits that in that indigenous folklore would come out of rocks and they disappear into rocky outcrops. So it's almost as if they're coming in and out of different dimensions, of different phases and interacting with our world. Are these the now, ones that are flat? Fascinating thing. I've, yes, the skinny ones. We, um, in my our context in our part of the country, they're known as quinkens. It's just a, a blanket statement for spirits. And there's good ones called um, Tamara, which are the tall, skinny ones, and Injim, which are the small, little ones, which tend to hunt and eat people, specifically children. Just to throw um, in kind of a funny so theory, if it is multidimensional, it's funny that they're flat because it almost seems like there's a possibility that they could be coming from a dimension under our dimension instead of above our dimension, exactly, like most like people they assume. Could, they could be, they could be two-dimensional. It's like. Um, how if you hold your hand, which is in a three-dimensional world above a piece of paper, the shadow which is cast onto it is two-dimensional. So we're still having an imprint on that lower dimension. So there's the potential that these things are either lower dimension and higher dimension and their shadows or their echoes are bleeding through into our dimension. Um, that's all the scientific type of idea about it. But then I come to it from a, a scriptural sense. Now, in Scripture, thanks to the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Book of Enoch, we know that there were fallen angels and they had children with men and they called them in a film, the giants. Um, in that scripture, anytime one of these giants was generally either killed by an angel, so by the hand of God, or killed by the hands of men or other giants, they would die and they would become mountains or rocks. Now, the interesting thing about First Nations sacred sites, like I said, they're rocky outcrops. And often it's said that if you take a rock from, or a piece of rock or a a piece of stone from those areas and you take it with you, you're actually cursed and it's seen as a, a big no-no amongst Indigenous communities. There's a large rock in Central Australia called Uluru. Um, it used to be known as Ayers Rock, a big giant rock in the middle of nowhere. Up until recently, you used to be able to climb it as a part of our tourism um, type of a system. And lots of people would take rocks from there. And it often found that people, when they took those rocks, they would have a very, very high um, string of bad luck People in their family would die, they'd have financial losses, accidents, so much to the point the only way they could find themselves to free that bad luck was to return that stone back to Ayers Rock. So my hypothesis is, are these sacred sites the remnants of the fallen ones? 
And by taking shards of them or pieces of them, you're taking that bad energy, that bad juju. Um, you're cursing yourself because you've, you have a small piece of that dark entity, which is supposed to be in place where it is. Just to make another weird connection to it, uh, just the lore that you were speaking of reminds me a lot of like the Norwegian like troll lore that they were these yes, giant beings and they turn into stone in the light. But I mean, that light could have been like a figure of speech for like the light, like the light of God or something like that, for example. And a huge part of the whole troll folklore is that they like hate church bells. They hate Christians and they eat Christians, which weirdly enough, you kind of fit in with the whole possibility of them even being a different idea of Nephilim because, I mean, you know, obviously there's different races depending on different regions of the world anyways, and people do look different. I mean, who's to say it's not the same with these Nephilim beings, that they have the same characteristics just like humans do? Like, you know, you put somebody that's Asian next to somebody that's black next to somebody that's white, you have similar characteristics, but they all look very different at the same time. I mean, that could be completely the same with trolls, Nephilim, giants, all these things are all the same different things, just different species, different races of the same things, because there's a lot of similar combining factors between them. Yeah, yeah, it's... um we neglect to realize that humanity at one point, according to the, the mainstream science perspective in itself was like a, an, uh, a Tolkien world where we had short little Hobbit Francis type people. We had Neanderthals, we had Cro-Magnon, we had Denosovan. We had all these different types of humanity living on earth at the same time. So it's not outside the realm of possibility. That there was multiple variations of fallen beings and how they presented in this world. Like you mentioned with in Scandinavian culture with the fae folk, um, trolls, dwarves, all those types of creatures in their mythology, they also centre around large stones, so much so that in Norway, Denmark, these types of countries, when they build highways on new roads, if there's a giant bone, uh, stone or boulder, they have to build the road around it. They're not allowed to move it or destroy it or place it somewhere else. They have to go around those those sections because they can't disturb the spirits air quote that live in those rocks. It's kind of funny how from American, from an American perspective, like when they were building like railroads and stuff, for example, instead of going around the mountain, they would just blast a hole straight through the center of it. And then you'd have all these like weird encounters with all these things, seeing like weird creatures, different things like that. But then you go to anywhere else in the world and America looks at any of that stuff like, Oh, that's woo woo, but it's normal practice for these countries to completely avoid an area because they know it's a spiritual area, for example. And I mean, even with like uh, a lot of like European cultures too, um, adding into like the whole fairy lore thing, not even just the big rocks. Like if there was an area that they quote knew that there was like a settlement of like fairies or some type of like different type of being, they would completely go around that area and completely avoid it with the roads they were building. So at that point, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's all folklore Maybe just some countries believe in it more than others, or maybe it's this concept about in some areas, I guess you could say that there's like remnant populations of these things where there's definitely some weird stuff in the United States. Don't get me wrong. But if you're going, for example, by like Graham Hancock's idea about how there was like the great cataclysm that uh, beat the shit out of the Scablands pretty much with like asteroids and then flooded everything out. I mean, the reason why we don't find a lot of structures like that in like North America is because, I mean, a lot of these creatures, these structures, these different things could have all been destroyed during that giant flood from that impact 
where over in Europe, it didn't give, have as nearly as much as the same effect as over here, especially if, you know, theoretically the Scablands is the actual impact site. So there might still be like remnants of these different creatures that are still a lot more prevalent over in European countries, Australia, all that stuff than it would be in North America where the exact impact site was. Yeah, it's a strange situation because if you go off that, that type of theory with the the glacial impact that created the flood and that, you know, that could be the story that's collective memory of what the Bible and um, the Sumerians talk about when it's a flood. Australia had major, because we're such a lowland country in comparison to the rest of the world, we don't have a lot of mountain ranges or anything like that. The majority of our topsoil got washed away in the last ice age. If you're in Australia, most of the time, you don't have to dig too far down to reach the clay base. So a lot of Australia's actually has been washed away. Um, whether that has anything to do with First Nations people arriving after the fact and maybe having limited contact with certain beings, it, it's hard to say because the, the history of Indigenous Australia goes back potentially 60,000 years, if not longer. So we don't know what our First Nations peoples truly encountered, but we've got their oral language stories to back up their encounters and, and their cave art, which even if you look at, say, something like a Gigantopithecus, that was within Southeast Asia. So it doesn't take the, the common person too much to think it could have followed the same land bridge down New Guinea into Australia itself. And maybe those were the Yowies that these people were seeing. I tend to think that, that they were probably more of a, a remnant population of the Nephilim that escaped the flood and escaped um, Europe and the Americas and was probably one of the last populations left. I mean, kind of a weird thing to think about, too. I feel like uh, like North American native culture and the indigenous in Australia, if you really dig into the whole like ape man concept, I feel like they have some of the oldest folklore dating back to that. Besides, you know, some people that like to try to connect the whole idea of um, what's his name? The wild man from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Other than that, as far as like density of stories goes, North America with Sasquatch and Australia with the Yowie seems to be the most in depth to the point where it's like, there's so much information on it that even if theoretically, if it was a species that became extinct, like there's some grain of truth to it. There was some other big ape like creatures that were living in both of these areas. Otherwise there's so much behind it. Like it wouldn't, I don't feel like there would have been that much if it was just like a one-time encounter. Like they were regularly seeing and interacting with all these different beings. Otherwise it's like, there's, that's a lot of lying through history for no reason, just for the sake of folklore and the way that at least like the natives, and I'm assuming also the aboriginals talk about these things, you know, they have like their folklore monsters. They kind of talk about them more uh, theatrically, I guess you could say. But when it comes to like the ape men, they talk about them more like uh, like another race of beings rather than like a creature, so to speak, especially before like the white settlers came. And I'm sure it's probably the same for you guys that it seems like there was a lot more interaction until the white settlers came. And at least from like Native American folklore, there's a lot of different legends about how the Sasquatch pretty much told the natives that if you're interacting with the white man, then we're we're not going to interact with you anymore. And I mean, I, I don't know if you have matching legends with that too, but I mean, that could be a totally fitting thing or maybe they just kind of knew that we brought danger because maybe they tried to move away. Theoretically, if they aren't necessarily Gigantopithecus, but maybe something that was from the same kind of a region where there's 
kind of like a mix between like, oh, it's just an ape and oh, it's some kind of intelligent ape. You know, they could have been seeing the damage that the white people were doing over from that area with all their invading and conquering and everything. And maybe that's why they moved to these more rural areas. And then once they showed up to these rural areas, they're like, we already saw what they were doing. They were going across the countryside, conquering, slaughtering people. Like we want nothing to do with them. We came here to avoid them in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Australia is a, a, a bit of a different kind of cultural aspect that I've researched quite a bit, but I've nowhere near researched the 500 odd different nations within Australia that have these stories. There are some that line up, perfectly with North American um, tales, specifically around the um, these hairy people being almost like the boogeyman tale. You can't leave the camp. If you leave the light of the campfire, you know, um, the Yowie will get you, the big hairy man will get you. So much that in some tribes in Western Australia that there's stories of the big hairy man with a basket on their back and they would snatch up children and put them in the basket. That lines up with some Cherokee stories that I've heard from the States. Beside that, the majority of stories that I've heard from mobs and local tribes is that these hairy creatures aren't exactly the nicest things. They don't have the relationships with tribes and trading and that type of thing you hear, like from North America. These aren't the types of people you want to be around. And and there's an Indigenous woman I work with, a wonderful woman, she's told me stories about these people and they're not the things you want to make contact with. You leave them alone, you steer clear of them, and you're going to be safe. But if you actively look for them or try to communicate with them, you're going to antagonize them and you won't have a good time. She told me a firsthand account of when she went out with her sisters and her cousins and had like a a cultural gathering, like a, a sacred woman's place. They had this um, this camping situation. And they were camping, they set their fire up, and one night, a big, tall, red-haired, hairy man was watching them just within the, the light of the campfire. And he wouldn't break that barrier. He wouldn't get any closer. He would stand in the middle of the bush, six to seven feet tall, standing there watching them. And it was interesting because they were all women. There weren't any men there. And he came back night after night after night just to watch them and didn't do anything. And they, they, they saw him. They didn't acknowledge it. They didn't try to communicate with it. But they saw it and it knew it saw them. Um, very interesting that there's a bit more of a, a fear of these things within the Australian folklore and stories, but it's interesting how some tribes in North America seem to have deals with them, barter with them, often in stories um, in America. They would unite with these things to fight giants and kill giants off, whereas in Australia, the, the quintessential Bigfoot, the hairy person, was always seen as a bad thing. But the other spirits, like the tall Quinkins, the the Tamar and the Injims, they didn't look that way, and they interacted with humans in a very different type of manner. That is kind of weird how the woo-woo in North America, woo-woo-sounding things in, in North America interact less, and the physical things interact more, and it seems to be the opposite as far as Australia goes. And just to throw in something that you were kind of saying about the Yowie with the whole like throwing children in the basket type thing, I almost wonder if... The whole idea of Krampus, nobody 100% for fact knows where all of that came from, but I wonder if it was partially influenced by either Aboriginal stories or if maybe there was uh, like a, you know, there's different temperaments depending on different beings, of course, like even within people, there's different temperaments and maybe these beings, there was some more North 
and they had the same characteristics and did the same things as the ones in Australia did because maybe they were the same species. And that's partly where maybe some of this like Krampus story could have came from, or maybe somebody traveled down to Australia, they were hearing these stories and then they brought it back. Like, Hey, I was hearing the story down in Australia about these big hairy things. And if you don't listen, they're going to take you and they put you in these baskets on their back. And then through just playing telephone, maybe that is, that's could have been where the whole idea of like where Krampus came from in the first place. Cause he's realistically a half, half man, half beast, hairy creature that puts kids in a basket cage thing on his back. Sounds extremely fitting to the Yowie idea. Yeah. I've got this hot take on it. Um, it's, a blending of Sitchinite theory with the hominids and how hominids came to be outside intervention and kind of ties into what um, the fallen ones and scriptural basis of theology is. At one point in human history, Cro-Magnon man, modern human, our earliest ancestors, they appeared, decimated Neanderthals, just wiped the slate clean. And within a few short 100,000-year time frame, they killed them all off. They either interbred with them or they just killed them and outcompeted them. Now, we think of Neanderthals as being the short, stocky, little, dumb person. Their cranial bun, the size, they had an occipital bun out the back. So their skull was larger than ours. They had a cranial capacitor greater than ours. Theoretically, they should have been a lot smarter. We know they were a lot stronger, a lot sturdy. Their bones were thicker. Their muscles would have been far stronger. But all the skeletons we see are quite short. There's a reason behind that. The majority of these skeletons, as an age are dated as being early teenagers. Now, we know that they would have grown beyond that size being a teenager. Teenagers get their growth spurt. You don't stop growing into like your mid-20s as a male. So we could have potentially had Neanderthals being that six to seven foot, seven and a half foot tall beings as adults. This is where predatory ape theory comes into it. The idea that the Neanderthal was a large cannibalistic predatory ape that preyed on early humans. And the only way that they were stopped was Cro-Magnon, modern human, banded together through their use of tools, wiped them out. Now, if we take the idea of the Garden of Eden being the first place where modern humans came from and spread out, maybe Cro-Magnon, Adam and Eve, were the first modern humans created and they spread out into the world and their first point of contact, the thing they had to contend with, was a Neanderthal, some kind of a a being that wasn't necessarily... Uh, a standard human. It could have been a fall in the film, could have been whatever it was. We don't know. But the the parallels that we're starting to see now is that early humans made contact with a humanoid type of species. They were in conflict for a long time until they were wiped out. And if we do take that predatory ape theory into contention, what would have been the easiest form of prey of modern humans? Our children. So we would have seen back then these large hairy creatures taking our children and using them as a quick, easy meal. We would have carried that trauma, that generational trauma, with us all the way through into today, and perhaps that's where our cultural stories and and all these religious archetypes, they all stem from one real series of events that happened in our early period of life, something that was so traumatic, so horrible, we can't shake it even as a modern people. And I mean, that can even tie in with the whole uncanny valley concept, too, that it's a little bit more in depth than we think it was, because realistically, most folklore has something to do with uh, something that's very similar to us, but not quite us. And it seems to always take our kids in the process. And I mean, just like you said, 
Um, quick, easy meal. I mean, of course, if you're going to go after a human, what would be easier to do? The one that's uh, mentally focused and able to fully produce the tools or the one that's still learning. And as soon as they lure a little bit away, walk away from them, they just snatch them up, call it a day and they get a meal out of it. And I mean, even in North America, you had all of the legends about the red haired giants that were cannibalistic and they would, uh, you know, go around and just kill and eat people. And so all of the uh, natives, different groups of natives, uh, different tribes, they all joined together and basically pushed these things into a cave and then like burned the entrance to the cave and killed these things off supposedly. So it's like, again, different little pieces of what seems to be one big connecting story that nobody's necessarily connecting the pieces, but it's all, it's all kind of there. There's some different variation in almost every continent about the groups that were there chasing these giant beings somewhere and killing them off theoretically. Yeah, it's like they've all got fragments of the one story, and if we could somehow piece them all together, we'll get the whole picture. But it's like um, how you mentioned 9-11. People who witnessed 9-11, depending on where they were, would have a, a slightly different take on what happened. Collectively, if they all got together, they could piece it back together perfectly. But individually, they've all got the same idea of what happened. They, they experienced the same trauma. They experienced the same event but they're going to share that story differently with their friends and people over time. And it's a matter of uh, even just playing telephone in the aspect where as time goes on too, the stories get even more extravagant and then they start separating from each other even more where maybe when they were first originally telling the story, everything was a little bit closer. And then through generation, 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 each generation is adding another little piece of the tale. So now these tales seem like they're, so far apart with little connecting pieces, but that's because the parts that are so far apart were all the additives that got added through the years and the connecting pieces are what the base of the story was to begin with that everybody was seeing from the same perspective. Because even just in general, um, you know, you saw something that happened right in front of your eyes and then you try to retell the story 10 years later and it's going to have some added details that you see as fact because it's just been tuned in your mind at that point. And then you're also going to miss out on some details. And then you tell the same story again, another 10 years later, and there's going to be more details that got added, more stuff that got taken away. And that's just within one person telling a story that there's already minute details. Now imagine that through generations and generations of people retelling stories. Imagine how far off that's realistically going to be from the base story. It's going to have the main base pieces, but all the extravagant stuff's going to be blown out of proportion. And more often than not, people are trying to look at stuff down to the finite exact detail instead of just uh, sitting back and taking a broader lens of the whole thing as a whole and realizing that there is still room for storytelling within any encounter or quote story. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's not looking at the minutia of every detail. It's looking at the consistent trends and themes and trying to develop a hypothesis that way. But you're exactly right. The greatest analogy to what you just said is the fishing story. Mm -hmm. Everyone's gone fishing before and your buddy goes, yeah, I caught a fish and it was this big and they might do a foot. And the next time they tell someone, it's a little bit bigger. And then they're at the pub and they're having a few beers with their mates and suddenly the fish is like six foot long. That's the biggest fish they've ever caught. It almost but pulled me out of the boat. With that person <laughs> firsthand. Yeah, exactly. People change stories and embellish things all the time. So what happens with oral storytelling over 50, 60,000 years? Things are going to change, but I think the core element the meaning, the intention behind those stories, the reason why they were handed down, why they were so important. That's the crux that people need to get to. Very true. So um, I'd love to continue with this on. 
Um, I'm going to have to definitely do a part two for this. Uh, hopefully we can coordinate something a little bit sooner than later next time. Um, I guess the next time that you have some time off work, we can dig a little bit more into these, uh, these concepts. But as of right now, I'm starting to get a little bit tired and I don't want to, uh, get a little bit too spacey for the conversation. Cause this is obviously a great conversation. I want to keep the momentum going. Uh, so as far as words of wisdom goes, if there's any words of wisdom that you could bestow on the listeners, be it something funny, something that relates to the topics that we talked about today, or just some words of wisdom that you just enjoy yourself, uh, what would they be? I heard this recently from one of my listeners and it rings so true for the world today. Uh, a population taught to hate its country won't defend it. And I think that applies to the majority of the Western world in the context of the UN, the WEF, who this broader global organization which is trying to take away our own individual rights and freedoms and within nationalities and countries so you know first you have to actually love your country and love the place in which you live to defend it and unfortunately i think there's a lot of self-hate and self-loathing happening in the world at the moment and we just need to remember that you know the world can be a good place the countries in which we live for the most part are great countries and great places to live in we just need to rekindle that love of who we are and where we are. That is very true. One thing I will add into that is I feel like part of the problem with that in general is that, I mean, there's people that have their conspiracy theories about populations to begin with. That There's a lot more rural areas than populated areas, just that everybody's confined into one area. But the problem with the more people that exist within a country or an area, the more contradicting ideas that there are. So in turn, it's harder for people to have that self-love for their country because originally the idea was that you would live in the place that aligned with the same values as you. And then in turn, you'd have a lot more love for what was happening because you were with like-minded individuals. Now in every country, there's so many different voices speaking in so many different directions on so many different topics. It's hard for anybody to fully feel at home in their country because the variety of people is so different now. We're not living in similar tribes anymore. We're living in a mass group that's all kind of thrown together. And rather than progressing as a whole in society, everybody's too preoccupied with trying to throw their opinions on somebody else while that person's trying to silence the other person's opinion while they're trying to have their opinion at the same time. And it has it's turned into this back and forth where there's not conversation about things anymore. It's rather agree with me or I'm going to do everything in my power to take away your right to not agree with me. And then in turn from that, it just makes it harder for everybody to, again, have that patriotism because they just have a sour taste in their mouth about their country unless they're on the side of whatever the uh, controlling power is at that current time. But that always shifts. So you may feel patriotic for this period of time, but as soon as the people in charge shift, then that patriotism goes away because those people have contradicting values with you. So then you go in this back and forth where it's like, half the country loves their country for this long and then the power flips and then the other half loves their country for this long and then it flips and the other half loves their power country for this long. But just, it's not that combining factor like it used to be where everybody loves the country at the same time. It's half and half depending on who's in charge at the time. Yeah. It's like you've all got a share home. I've got this lovely established Victorian era house and multiple people move in at the same time. We've got this one great shared living room and you go off to your bedroom and you come back out and the lounge room has been changed to a different style and you didn't realize it's happened. And you go into the next room, into the kitchen and the kitchen is ultra modern and you look in your room, your room's still in traditional type of stylings. It's like we've all got the same living space and as demographics and culture changes over time, the idea of what that place that you love 
has changed because the demographics and the populations changed. Yep, and then everybody's only content and happy in their safe space that they've created for themselves. Some great words of wisdom. Definitely thought-provoking towards the end there, and I definitely enjoy those because sometimes, you know, people throw some ideas um, and it doesn't, you know, it, it's, it's a great concept, of course, but it doesn't necessarily spark another opportunity for conversation. And with that, again, this is just more of a reason why I definitely have to have you back on the show because I really enjoyed having this conversation, and I'm sure the listeners definitely enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, thanks, mate. This has been great. Um, long time coming, and hopefully we can uh, squeeze another one in before the end of the year. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, for anybody that wants to come and find your show, because I know you're doing some awesome work over there, uh, where can everybody find your show? Uh, where can they connect with you? And uh, where can they just, I guess, all around find anything that you are planning on doing in the future also? Uh, you're missing the point. You can find me on all the usual podcatchers. Missing is M-I-S-S-E-N. It's just a play on my surname. Um, I'm also in a podcast called Conspiracy Theater 3000 with myself, Ryan Dean, and Moral Bob, where we break down classic cult cinema films for uh, conspiracy theories, psyops, all that type of fun stuff. And I have a co-hosting position on a educational podcast called The Homeroom Educating Educators, where myself and my co-host, Kaylee, who is a homeschooling mum and I'm a public school teacher, we try to help out families navigating the educational system, both within Australia, the US, and a global stage, just trying to help families with their children's education. Sounds like you stay busy over there, man. And I definitely appreciate a busy guy doing a lot of stuff and you got a lot of interesting stuff going on. So hopefully the listeners will go and check it all out because I guarantee you it's definitely worth it and it's definitely a wide variety as far as content goes. Yeah, man, thanks. I just try to scattergun approach it, try to spread into all the areas that I'm interested in and you know, hopefully people get something out at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, definitely. And again, man, I appreciate you making the time to come on today. It's been a great conversation, and I'm really looking forward to next time. Me too, mate. Thanks for having me. If you guys enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Spotify. If you guys leave five stars on iTunes and you guys leave an awesome review, I will read on the show and give you guys a big shout out. And uh, if you think anybody in particular will enjoy this episode, don't forget to share through word of mouth with a friend. It's an awesome way to help the show grow and make it so that the algorithm shows the show to more people and it keeps helping the show expand and to keep growing into the future. Because in the next year or so, I want to try to kick this thing into high gear. Eventually, I want to hopefully be able to do this full time. But the only way I'm ever going to be able to do that and produce endless amounts of content for you guys is with your guys' support, of course. And if anybody wants to get a hold of me for any reason whatsoever, uh, like I said in the beginning of the show, if you have some art you want to contribute, if you want to be a guest on the show, if you just want to have a conversation, or if you want to sponsor the show in some way, shape, or form, uh, we can work something out. Especially if you guys have cryptid-related merchandise, I would definitely love to work something out. Uh, you guys can get a hold of me through Instagram, which is the form of social media I'm the most active on, or you guys can email me at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. Or you guys go to the link tree, fill the submission form, and that will go directly to my email, of course. I do respond to every single message I get from you guys, so make sure nothing gets missed in the spam or junk folder because it seems like a lot of my messages tend to go that way. So keep an eye out. Make sure that it doesn't get lost within the clutter of your awesome spam and junk folder, which I'm sure is full of just the most delightful emails. And uh, everything that I mentioned, of course, all available in the link tree, which is available down in the show description. Or if you don't want to do that, you guys can always go to your web browser and type in L-A-N-K-T-R period E-E slash Increase of All Reality Podcast. And with that, hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And I'll catch you on the next one. Have a good night, everybody. Mm-hmm.